0: Hey friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, Glenn Siepert. I'm your host and you have landed on episode number 209 of the show. We just keep rolling along and today we're talking to repeat guest David Bracke. Uh He was on the show last summer to talk to us about his book, The Gnostics. We explored, we talked all about Gnosticism and the Gnostics and heresy And the origins of these things and I learned a lot it's a very accessible book what I mean by that is like it's it's not a like a difficult read I think like anybody who just has even a very basic general knowledge of this stuff uh, will find it very very helpful and very easy to uh, read and comprehend all that kind of stuff so that was a great conversation This is kind of like The Graduate, (laughs) it's like stepping into new territory from that conversation because we're going to talk about a specific Gnostic text today. Uh, So last time we talked about, you know, Gnosticism, Gnostics, kind of an overview of this stuff. This time we're going to drill into the Gospel of Judas. Uh, He wrote a a commentary for the Anchor Yale Bible. Uh, It's a translation, It's it's got a commentary and notes in it. It's really good. It's a little on the pricey side. I think it's like 50 bucks on Amazon. Uh, but I picked it up because I knew I wasn't going to understand a lot of it, <laughs> and I didn't. And I, I talk about this in the episode um, because the the translation, and I, I could have this wrong, who knows, but the, it, it was written in Coptic, uh, which is like Egyptian, I believe. And there's a whole first part of the, the book that's talking about this translation, the process of translation, I don't know what I'm reading. It made zero sense to me. I read like four pages and felt like I had to take a nap. <laughs> and then I, I skimmed over the rest, and I got to the second part, which is where he actually translates the gospel, so you can read it in English. And then he has notes on the verses, and then commentary on the passages, where he shares uh, some of what you're reading in the context of the time it was written. Now. Cool thing about this gospel, and we're gonna talk about it in the episode, is it was written in like somewhere between 130 and I believe he said 170 AD. Uh which really, if you think about it, is not that long after our four gospels that we have were written. The earliest was Mark, written in let's just say sometime in the sixties. The last one is is we have is John, written some probably like maybe let's just say one hundred. And so this gospel is somewhere between thirty and seventy years after the Gospel of John. It's not that long, right? And so one of the, the things I said to David in the in the episode is that these thoughts that the Gospel, the writer of the Gospel of Judas is sharing with us, are obviously thoughts that were swirling around at the same time that the thoughts of the Gospel of John and Mark, Matthew, Luke, all those were, were happening as well. So these are these are ideas that were that had a place back in those times. and I think it's so cool that we found we found this text. We have people like David who are doing the work of translating them and helping us understand how they fit into history and giving them a little bit of a voice. Uh, this text, as Davids going talk about, is a very negative text. It's not like something you would pick up and have quote devotions with if you did that back in your, back in the day, your morning devotions, pick it up for something, pick up your Bible for something encouraging in the morning. This isn't really an encouraging book. It has Jesus laughing at the disciples. He calls them demons, (laughs) all sorts of things. Uh, But I love it. I think it's so cool, and I really enjoyed this conversation with David. So pick up, uh, if this book, this book is, is, like I said, it's a lot. It's it's a little bit heavy in terms of the price and also um, in terms of the Uh, The content, but he talks at the end of the episode. uh, He he talks a little bit about other books that are out there if you want a more accessible read about the Gospel of Judas. Uh, Elaine Pagels and Karen King have one out. uh, Bart Ehrman. There's another one that's like a collection of different essays written by scholars. Uh, All those books, you can find them like in your local bookstore. I went to the bookstore the other day, Books a Million, and they had like two books on the Gospel of Judas that were there. And I was like, oh. This place, this place gets it. <laughs> this place here, down in the south, we live in the southern USA, and uh, the bookstore has the Gospel of Judas stuff in it. So, uh, anyway, my point is, you can go to Barnes and Noble. You can always order it if they don't have it. Obviously, Amazon stuff like that. But he'll talk about it at the end of the at the end of the show. So I'll put his links in the show notes, uh, along with the link to my book, uh, Rethinking Everything, uh, which is a. Kind of a uh, look at my spiritual journey from this world of black and white fundamentalist conservative uh, thinking into a great wide world of color, and so I talk a little bit about uh, the my story, and my journey in there. I don't. My computer's doing something really weird. Why keep like saying weird things? Uh, I don't know. Saying that my connections lost to my mouse, but my mouse is moving. I don't know. Anyway, but anyway, I'll put the link to my book in the show notes. So I've had a lot of questions lately about the book, and put uh, my journey, some questions about my story and stuff, and I don't know, I, th- I feel like a solo episode is coming, friend. I feel like I, I have some things I want to share, because there's there's some some stuff that's happened to me in the last few weeks in terms of conversations I've had with uh, various people from my old former tribe, and a lot of those conversations uh, I've learned are conversations other people are having with friends former members of, members of their former tribe as well. So I feel like there's a lot of people wrestling with very similar things. And uh, I think I want to talk about it. So maybe there'll be a solo episode coming up soon. I don't know if it's gonna be like a full episode or a bonus episode. I don't know. But I feel like I have some things to say. And maybe we'll just flip on the mic and talk about it. Uh, without Jordan. <laughs> you guys heard Jordan the other day. We had a lot of fun together. Uh, she, that was a bonus episode my daughter telling the story of Jesus. Uh, so if you haven't caught that, uh, go back like two or three, and it's there. It's only like eight minutes. Uh, but she wanted to come on the show and talk talk to Daddy about the story of Jesus and share it with all of you. And uh, we're already planning our next joint episode, so look forward to that. Uh, you'll get to hear from her again. But she's such a little firecracker. <laughs> she's so funny. She sits down here in the mic, and she, like, owns the desk. You know, where's my highlighters? Where's my pens? Give me my paper. I need to draw while we talk to the people, you know. So uh, she's a piece of work. But anyway... So all that to say, my friends, uh, who knows what's coming down the road, but some some good things. And uh, yeah, that's all I got to say. All links in the show notes. Patreon, buy me a coffee to support the show. And that's it. This, though, is episode number 209 with Dr. David Brackey. Enjoy.
1: Came up from all the struggle. We still in trenches. There's no tomorrow. Tighten up like some riches. See it all on my skin. It is, so I'm grinning. Get happy for my own people moving forward now let's get it let's take it back in the day we came up from the bottom made it up to the top like we all want the lotto we all rich in the love ain't got more than enough it can spread the whole masses just trust me this not a bluff just know you're worth it don't settle we not wasting no time but we can't get it back Oh yeah, we gonna be fine. We move in like we on Broadway. Let us get our shine. Already conquered the past. Why there's still a divide? Break down, let's come together. Put one fist in All right, hey head.
0: everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we are sitting down with a repeat guest and a friend of the show, Dr. David Bracki, to talk about the forbidden and heretical
2: book. <laughs> Cue the ominous music.
0: The Gospel of Judas. So, David, welcome back to the show. It's always an honor to talk to you.
2: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: Thank you. So, for our listeners, if you want to know more about uh, David, head back to the episodes. It goes like a year ago, maybe summer of summer summer of 2021, and listen mm-hmm. to the conversation we had about the the Gnostics. But today, that we have a lot of talk about concerning this this book, the Gospel of Judas. Now, I told you, David, before uh, we hit record, that I picked up your book that you just wrote on the Gospel of Judas. Mm-hmm. And uh, for our listeners, it's part of the was it the Anchor Yale Bible? Is that correct? Anchor Yale Bible. Correct. Series? Yeah, Yeah, so I'll be honest, I'm not a scholar, and so the first section was a little over my head, which you warned me about when we were emailing about the translation stuff and Coptic and all that, but the second section with the commentary and the notes, there was so much in there that I found so interesting. So maybe we could start off with the general stuff, like tell us a little bit about what we know of this gospel, like when was it written, do we have any idea who wrote it, and if not, like from what tribe or group they were from? I know it spent time in a safety deposit box. I heard something like that. So, did it give us like a high level overview of what, what do we know about this book?
2: <laughs> um, well, we've always known we that is the scholarly community have mm-hmm. always known that there was a Gospel of Judas because a um, multiple early Christian authors mention it. Uh, the earliest being Irenaeus. I'm um, sure he
0: liked it a lot, right? He had a lot of did good not.
2: <laughs> he, he did not like it, um, but he mentions it around the year 180. Mm-hmm in his massive book against Gnostics and Valentinians and other heretical quote unquote, groups. Yeah. And, um, and so he knows this Gospel of Judas and he associates it with um, a group he calls the Gnostics or mm-hmm. the Gnostic school of thought. So, um, so he mentions it. And so it had always been known that there was a Gospel of Judas mm-hmm. and it was just assumed to be lost. Um, and and there had been some theories that although uh, Irenaeus made it clear that the Judas here was Judas Iscariot, mm-hmm. uh, there were some th- uh, theories that maybe Irenaeus had not had misunderstood, mm-hmm. and uh, that the Judas here is like. Uh, Judas Thomas or Mm -hmm. you know the Judas who allegedly wrote the epistle of Jude which really should be the epistle of Judas right Mm -hmm. which is one reason we always say Judas but so in any event (laughs) we always knew that there was this gospel of Judas Um, but scholars did not become aware that it really existed um, you know and have a copy of it until um, 2006, but it goes back earlier, obviously. Mm-hmm. So um, it seems we don't know the details that in the late 1970s, a Coptic codex was discovered in Egypt, in the region of Al-Ninia. Uh We can't be certain about all these details. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some Western scholars got their first look at it in 1983, mm. uh, in a kind of strange scene in a hotel room in geneva and stuff like this but anyway sounds like a movie <laughs> it is it, there should be a movie well yeah. there was a national geographic special when it came out that True. that had movie-like elements because people <laughs> acted out some of this stuff sure. but the gist is is that various middlemen and antiquities dealers um tried to get the best deal for the codex mm-hmm. in terms of money um, for basically the 1980s, 1990s, mm. uh, so for 20 years, and yeah, it went through. You know, they, you know, people did things like rearrange the pages, uh, put it in a safe deposit box where mm. it just stayed for a long time. One antiquities dealer thought it was a good idea to, you know, freeze it, mm. uh, which of course was not a good idea because it's papyrus, so it's organic material. So, um, you know, so the the liquid that was in there. You know, yeah, uh, froze and then when it was thawed became liquid, sure. Um, so anyway, it was very ill treated, but Mm. the gist is that it is in Coptic. Um, and the first question is, of course, is this the Gospel of Judas that Irenaeus mentions in 180, uh, which must have been in Greek Mm. because that was. You know the language of Christians at the time. And, uh, and most scholars have decided, yes, that this mm-hmm. is. So um, there are dissents. And if you want to hear about that, we could talk about it. But mm-hmm. uh, the gist is, is that if that's the case, then it must have been written in Greek sometime before you know, by the 170s it had been mm-hmm. written. Mm-hmm. Then the question is how early is it? And I don't think it can be much earlier than the 130s, mm-hmm. I think. So it's probably the middle of the second century written in Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the Coptic <laughs> translation was made is not certain, but we can date the Coptic Codex very confidently to the fourth century, to the 300s, mm-hmm. um, because there's been radiocarbon dating, which gives a kind of wide range, but comparison of the script with other um, known manuscripts from that time, like the mm-hmm. Nakamadi codices, very famous, it makes it pretty certain that it's from the, the fourth century. Got so it. so that's it. We have no idea who wrote it. No there idea. is no, no authorial claim. It's mm-hmm. not, see, very interesting, not the gospel according to Judas. mm mm-hmm as the gospel according to Matthew, which suggests sure. authorship, right? Um, it's the gospel about Judas mm-hmm. and the author does not identify himself. We'll just assume him. Um, and so we don't now. And uh, But um, I tend to believe Irenaeus that the author was a Gnostic that mm-hmm. is belonged to this group of Christians who called themselves Gnostics and had certain very distinct beliefs from other Christians. Mm. Then there's a question of where it yeah. was written. It keeps so going. this is the last little bit to talk <laughs> yeah. about. And, um, and the gist is, is that because it was written in Greek in the second century by a Christian, mm-hmm. it could come from anywhere in the Mediterranean world because Christians, even in the areas of the Roman Empire that we think of as Latin speaking, were using Greek at this time. Mm. Um, so, but I have proposed as a possible location and I'm not the only one Rome um, because um, some of the practices and beliefs against which the author polemicizes the things mm-hmm. he doesn't like mm-hmm. uh, we find in Christian texts and sources that are connected with Rome in the in the second century. but this mm-hmm. is completely hypothetical, could not be proved and you know
0: so there's a lot of like cross-referencing that goes on when you're trying to figure out, where these ideas may maybe have originated or who wrote it or where it was from like you can look at other texts that were around at that time and see the parallels between them.
2: Right. So perhaps the other most famous gnostic text is mm. the apocryphon of John or secret mm. book according to John, right? And a lot of scholars think well this probably comes from Alexandria because um it has a lot of resonances with philo the great jewish scholar who was active in alexandria in the first century and other kinds of stuff that you see percolating in alexandria again no way to prove this but that's the kind of argument that one makes the gospel of judas however has none of those kinds of Hmm. uh, philosophical connections yeah what i find so other things
0: yeah what i find so interesting is like you said it was your your date proposal for data is like the 130s, you said, right?
2: Or to the 170s, to so the 170s, somewhere in there, somewhere right? in that no Paul earlier think. than the 130s, I don't think, because okay. it seems to know the other Gospels.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so interesting, because one of the things I was always told regarding these books is that, well, they were written so long after all the other books, that couldn't possibly have any basis in early Christianity. But if it, if it is 130s, 140s, 150s, whatever, that's not long after, like, the Gospel of John was written. Like, if you think about the grand scheme of things, we're talking about the same kind of window of history. So that must mean these ideas, and correct me if I'm wrong, but were the ideas portrayed in this book were floating around at that time. Oh, like, definitely. Right. Oh,
2: certainly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, one reason I don't think it can be earlier than the 130s is that I think the author does know... Um, one or more of the canonical gospels, as we call Mm. them, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, um, and uh, probably Matthew, at least. And so that means those texts must have had time to circulate and become known to other people. But it also represents the case that obviously this author didn't think they had written the last word, Mm. you know, and, and he had, he had his own. There's more to be
0: said. (laughs) Right. And
2: you know, he doesn't explicitly mention these texts. He just seems to assume that you might have read them. Sure. Or know about them.
0: All right. So let's get into some of the 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 good stuff. Um Mm -hmm. maybe tell us about what what is this book about? Like what's the main story, the main narrative? And it's funny because the other night I was telling my wife that you were coming on the show and I said that uh, we're talking about the Gospel of Judas. This was over Mm -hmm. dinner, and she's like, Oh, cool. Like I've heard about that. Like, what's it say? So I, I go into this like 10 minute monologue about the story <laughs> after reading your book and the, the King and Pagel's book and a little bit of Bart Ehrman's book. And by the way, she was looking at me, I was making no sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> so take us into the story um, a little bit in a way that's going to make a whole lot more sense than anything <laughs> I could explain. Uh, What's going on in the Gospel of Judas?
2: (laughs) Well, um, it it the Gospel of Judas uh, opens by announcing what it is, which Mm -hmm. it, it calls itself a secret report of judgment that in which Jesus and Judas will discuss things. So it it identifies itself as a judgment text right at the start. Right, then it gives a little summary of Jesus's ministry. He came to earth to save people, performed miracles, called disciples, and so forth. And then it kind of shifts into a which is all very familiar. Christian mm-hmm. readers would be like, yes, too crazy course. yet.
0: Yep. No, yep. no, 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 no.
2: <laughs> and then suddenly it kind of shifts into a different mode, into a kind of weird, different time-space thing, mm-hmm. in which Jesus has a series of conversations with um all the disciples, mm-hmm. and, sometime, and then with just G- Judas himself alone. Um, and the conversations kind of unfold and over a certain, and I'll come back to the content of those sure. in a second, and sure. then at the end of these conversations, um, Jesus goes up in a cloud, mm-hmm. uh, but then the next thing we know, we're kind of back in the story world of the New Testament Gospels with Jesus in the upper room on the night in which he is betrayed, mm-hmm. and Judas is outside that room discussing Jesus with scribes, Jewish scribes, and he agrees to take money from them and hand Jesus over to them, and then it ends. Mm-hmm. So it it's an odd kind of, it it, it identifies itself as taking place in an eight-day period right up to the day before Jesus debt. Mm -hmm. So this would be right up to that night, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's when when it ends. Um, So the conversations are mostly with Jesus and Judas. And what they reveal primarily is why Judas needs to do what he has to do, which Mm -hmm. is hand Jesus over, Mm -hmm. and why people have misunderstood the meaning and significance of Jesus's death and why um, their practice of the Eucharist to commemorate that death is wrong, wrongly practiced. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the the content of these conversations show how other Christians have gone wrong mm. and explain, if you want to put it this way, the real reason Judas had to do what he had to do. Mm. And um, yeah, so, so there it is. That's, that's the main... That's the framework of it. Sure. And a lot of the content is, is highly negative about other Christians and about the divine, semi-divine, whatever you want to call them, beings that actually rule this cosmos as we know it.
0: Wow. Okay. So now I, now I have a whole list of questions. So where okay. am I, I going to start? Okay. So let me think. The book ends, right? We said that the book ends very abruptly. Right. And yes. I was surprised when I first read that because it just ends with I think Judas just handing over Jesus or saying that or agreeing to hand over Jesus something like that, right? Yes. And so there's no rest, there's no crucifixion, there's obviously no resurrection, all that stuff is is gone. Um, is there something? Is there something in what the author left out that the author is trying to say to us? Because obviously there's a lot that you can say by the things you include. But it feels so obvious that there should be something more there, right? Because we're so familiar with these other gospels. Like obviously, could like you just hand over Jesus? The next thing is the big, the big thing is the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. These are the, and the, you know, you know the magnificent stones of Christianity that we all know <laughs> about, but they're not there in this text. So is there something there that you think that the author is trying to tell us by what he's leaving out?
2: Um. Well, I think he, what, what, the the leaving out of that Mm -hmm. stuff indicates is that he thinks people already know what happened next okay um so i think he assumes you know that from the other gospels so he's Mm -hmm. not saying the other gospels are completely wrong right he assumes that you know that that indeed thanks to judas jesus Mm -hmm. was arrested the crucifixion occurred and uh, then the question becomes you know then we have to kind of speculate uh did he believe in a resurrection Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can talk about that because this is, that's a, what I was thinking. Yeah. Yes. So you, um, believe in it? <laughs> you know. Well, uh, we can just dive right into this. The, sure. the problem is, um, he, you know, Jesus talks about the salvation of humans mm-hmm. quite a bit in this. And it's clear that the, the, what need humans need to be saved from is indeed their mortality. Mm. Uh, that is what, what has led to our unhappiness in this world is the fact that we were made by these rebellious lower divinities who constrain us through our mortality. Mm. They they limit our lifespan, and time controls us. Right, mm. our time is ticking away. If you put it that way. <laughs> um, so then, you know, when Jesus talks, and it's always very elusively and briefly about salvation, he seems to assume that human beings, all of us. Um, have kind of three components to us. A body, Mm -hmm. which will die. Mm -hmm. Um, A soul, which is the center of your personality. It's what makes you, you, right? And then a spirit, which is given to you by God, which is what makes you alive. Mm. And it's clear he describes death as when the spirit leaves the body. Mm. And he seems to assume that people who are not saved... When that happens, both their souls and their bodies die. The people who are saved, their bodies die, but their soul goes up to the higher realm of true divinity. Mm -hmm. There is no mention at any time of a resurrection for us, for normal humans, of our bodies in the future or any kind of notion of resurrection. It seems to believe the soul of the saved people when your body dies and this divine spirit has gone away so that, you know, your soul goes up and that's mm-hmm. it, you know, there's no resurrection. So the question becomes, did he think, for example, that the Jesus, you know, <laughs> what happened to Jesus? Um, and this is obscure because the author, when Jesus talks about the crucifixion, he says, the the person who dies and suffers is Jesus says the human being who bears me. Mm. So the divine Jesus is clearly separate from the human Jesus right. in some sort of, you know, in terms of you know nature or something mm-hmm. of that kind. So did the author believe that you know, at, and and Jesus is quite clear that the resurre- the crucifixion will not harm him. That mm-hmm. is the divine Jesus who speaks in this text. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will only. Divine, kill the human being who bears jesus so then the question becomes did the author believe that the human being who bear jesus was resurrected mm-hmm. we do not know mm-hmm. we can only <laughs> um, <guess. laughs> yes we can only guess and um you know i i think it's possible he does mm-hmm. um you know um you know, Irenaeus says that there are Gnostics who have a very similar view, that they're divine being who's in a human being, and only mm-hmm. the human being dies on the cross, but who also believe that that human being was raised up as a kind of sign that the presence in Jesus was divine. It make, it indicates this was more than just an ordinary human being. Sure. So it's possible this guy believes this. We We just we don't know it, but it doesn't seem as though he, he considers a resurrection for us as part of our future. Mm. Okay.
0: So you talk about, you talk about how for the writer, the people who are saved, right? Their souls and their, their spirits, I believe you said, uh, continue to to live, but the, the body and this the spirit or the body and the soul of the person who's not saved, it just goes away. So what is salvation then for this writer? Because you mentioned earlier that they're kind of pushing up against kind of maybe what was going to become that Orthodox belief of Jesus's death for, um, you know, like as a sacrifice for the, the sins of all people, whatever. So if there's still the talk of salvation here and there's people who gain salvation and their souls continue to live, what does salvation look like for this writer, in your estimation?
2: Um, well, I think these um, people. How the question is, how do you be, so the salvation consists in your soul continuing to exist after yeah. your death? That's yeah. what you want to have happen. Mm-hmm. How do you get to have that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, there seem to be two things that that Jesus does that makes this possible. One is, of course, reveal to you all this information,
0: mm-hmm.
2: namely that the god who created us and who is the god of the old testament uh, the god of the jewish people the god who most christians worship as the father of jesus that is not the true god Uh, there is a higher god called the invisible spirit and so god gives this makes available apparently made available to this to people from the get-go because it says it was given to adam and the people around him the gnosis the word is used Mm -hmm. gives people the gnosis the knowledge of this so the first thing to be saved is you need to have this knowledge You Mm -hmm. you need to know and recognize and stop therefore worshiping the god of the Old Testament, the God who created humans, the lower God,
0: right? the lower
2: God, right. <laughs> exactly. So you need to have that information and stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one thing that has to happen, and then the second thing that has to happen is these lower gods need to be like destroyed and gotten rid of, mm. and that seems to be what the death of Jesus accomplishes. Mm. That is, um, that is the death of Jesus is called a sacrifice. But this author doesn't think sacrifice is such a great thing Mm -hmm. because it's what this lower God demands, right? Mm -hmm. He demands sacrifice. But when Jesus, the human being who bears Jesus, is sacrificed and he calls it a sacrifice, he says to Judas, you will sacrifice the human being who bears me. This seems to be kind of like... a. Uh, the gift that destroys the recipient or something like this. (laughs) That is this, the sacrifice is made to the, to the lower God of the human being who bears Jesus, but this sacrifice results eventually in his destruction and the overthrow of him and all his rulers, right? Mm. Now this, I should point out is, is a common theme already in the New Testament, Mm. right? The idea that Jesus's death and resurrection are a kind of victory over sin and death that destroys them Mm -hmm. is something you find in Paul, for example. I mean, you find that idea much more in Paul than the idea of atonement, right? The idea that Jesus is sacrificed for sin. You find Mm -hmm. that very briefly in Romans chapter three, but otherwise it's Jesus's death and resurrection are victory over death. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that seems to be and the defeat of the ruler of this world, which Paul calls, I assume, Satan, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, so that's how it seems to work. You need to know this information, mm-hmm. which gnosis, and you need Jesus to come and be sacrificed, and in that way overcome these rulers that you know lorded over us.
0: So then, the the the, the looking at the story then of Judas, we're all familiar with the idea that you know Judas. Um, betray Jesus for these 30 pieces of silver. and some say it's because he wanted the money. Some say it's because mm-hmm. he was bored of Jesus and it was, you know, this wasn't what the Messiah is supposed to do, whatever the case may be. But the story of Judas, the Gospel of Judas, takes a little bit of a different twist, obviously, because it's almost like Jesus and Judas, and correct me if I'm wrong, by having this like backroom conversation saying this is the way it needs to go down. And so Judas hands over Jesus, now, I'm assuming because of what you just spoke of that, because that death had to happen in order mm-hmm. to overthrow this lower God. And so it's kind of right. like this behind the scenes plan of you're the in guy because you understand who I am. So you're going to be my man and you're going to be the one who's going to help me make this happen.
2: Yes. Judas uh, has this role because there's an early scene, one of the first conversations of Jesus yeah. with the, with the disciples. Judas is among the disciples of Jesus, the only one who knows that Jesus is not the son of the Old Testament God, but in mm-hmm. fact comes from this higher realm, this, you know, higher divinity, the invisible spirit, and specifically a aspect of the higher God called the Barbalo, which is a distinctive Gnostic character. Mm-hmm. And uh, because Judas knows these things, Jesus says, well I got more to tell you and kind of takes him <laughs> apart and and gives but wait him, there's
0: more right?
2: <laughs> yes and gives him all this information, yeah. which I think is to explain this is why you're going to need to do this yeah. and because um, you're the one who understands what this is all about hmm. and uh, this is and it's it's interesting at the end of the gospel it says um, you know they come to Judas, the scribes do and Judas, does what they wished. Mm. So you kind of get a sense that Judas himself isn't necessarily excited to be doing this. And indeed he shouldn't be because Jesus keeps telling him things are not going to be good for you. despite the fact that you have to do this. Right. (laughs) Right. So, um, so Judas's role is essential, you know, but having someone killed is still a bad thing. Yeah. And, um, but Judas has this information, which the other disciples do not he sees Mm -hmm. what needs to be done and he and he has he he has the knowledge of who jesus really is sure that the other gospel that the other disciples do not have and by the way this is precisely what Irenaeus, when he mentioned the gospel in the year 180 Mm -hmm. pointed out as one of its features that Mm -hmm. judas knows what the other disciples do not
0: and that almost elevates him above those disciples right because doesn't jesus call him like the says he's going to be like the 13th or he mentions like he's the thirteenth or something like that. Like he's going to be, and is that almost like he's going to be a step above these other disciples? Like he's going to be uh, a super disciple.
2: (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, Um, you know, it's, it's cryptic, but the gospel seems to be saying that, you know, well, once Jesus, once these current rulers are overthrown, right. Who's going to run things here? Looks like it's going to be Judas actually, that he himself is going to become what he calls the 13th demon and which is indeed kind of above the 12 and it looks like he will kind of become the, um, I don't know how you'd put it, the manager or administrator of this lower cosmos after, um, these, you know, these other rulers are removed. It's it's not per- perhaps a particularly compelling assignment, not mm. maybe the most attractive thing. And then Jesus says, you know, you're not going to go up to, he- to what we would call heaven. You're not going to go up there. You're going to stay here and have a mm. continuing job to do. Um, and people are going to hate you and curse you and all that kind of stuff yeah so so Which no. They have. <laughs> exactly so and obviously the author writing in the mid you know 100s we assume already know, you know is already you know this explains you know sure. yes people do hate judas and they curse him um but you know it was it was part of his task to do this yeah.
0: Yeah. Now in the gospel, um, Jesus, Jesus laughs a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I think is so funny. And I was, I was telling, talking to my wife, like I said before about this over dinner, my daughter was there, she's five. And I was saying that, you know Jesus would laugh at the disciples, and, and my my daughter says, "Why isn't Jesus being nice?" <laughs> the disciples, but oh, uh, questions, <laughs> right? So according to what I've read in in your book, along with the others, <laughs> is that whenever Jesus laughs, it's like he the reader needs to pay attention, right? Because he's yes. about to flip some idea on his head or teach us something new or different. So you don't have to go through all of them unless you want to. That's fine. But which one do you think is the maybe the most significant or the most important for like a modern reader to know, uh, which idea that Jesus is kind of flipping on its head.
2: Oh, by far the first time Jesus laughs. Uh, so, um, Jesus, this is, you know, the, the opening of this kind of main section of the gospel Mm -hmm. with all these conversations, Jesus comes across the disciples having a meal which the disciples call their Eucharist, their mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, right? Eucharist in Greek just means Thanksgiving. So they're portrayed as making Eucharist over the bread and then they refer to their Eucharist. And when Jesus sees this, he laughs. And the disciples think he's laughing at them. They say, why are you laughing at us? This is what we're <laughs> supposed to do. And he says, well, I'm not laughing at you. I'm I'm laughing because by this ritual, your God is blessed or praised mm. or whatever. And so what he's laughing at is the ritual and the idea of this God being blessed and praised mm. in this ritual. And it's it is indeed a kind of mocking, derisive laughter, I would say. Um, you know, the, the idea of God laughing at his enemies is found in the Psalm, Psalm mm-hmm. two, where God mm. laughs at, you know. Laughs them to scorn. You know, you, right. if you if you ever listen to the Messiah by Handel, that's one of the earliest you know yeah. little uh, songs that the that I think the bass sen- sings. But in any event, um, Jesus, you know that I mean that's really to laugh at the central ritual that most Christians perform: the yeah. Eucharist is pretty intense. And that's the moment where, you know, and the disciples in response say, what do you mean our God? Uh, you know, our, you're the son of our God. Mm. And that's when Jesus is like, oh, you don't know. <laughs> oh, you don't know. We have so, so much to talk about. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's when he <clears throat> kind of gives this challenge. And Judas is the one who steps up and says, I know you actually come from the Barbelo, right? Mm. And um, so the gist is, is that this is the moment if you're a, you know, Christian who's not a part of the group of this guy, you know, the author of this thing, that you go, oh my goodness, because he's saying the ritual you do is misguided and it's offered to a God who is not, in fact, uh, the father of Jesus. And this is wrong. And you've done this because you think this is what Jesus's death should lead to. That is, Mm -hmm. you know, this, this meal, this jesus's body and blood but you know no the whole thing is wrong you've misunderstood hmm. the god you worship is not the real god and so forth yeah i'm thinking nothing about... that follows is at all as shocking as that i mean sure. it's all the rest of it is all kind of filling out uh that kind of central insight
0: the major shock factors there in the beginning right <laughs> yes, from yeah. that
2: point on people should be, you know, pe- people who are not part of the author's group, right? And, yeah. and so for whom these ideas are new and different would have been shocked by this. And yeah. indeed the whole tenor of the gospel is stop doing this.
0: Mm. Yeah, so I was yeah. going to ask like what would the like what would the writer of Judas like what would what would Jesus in this book be telling us to do with Communion, if right? that's what most people call it, it was just just scrap it all together. Like it's just it's it's meaningless. It's this is not this is you're performing this for the lower God. You're not performing this for for me, who came from the higher God.
2: Yeah, again, this is this is where we kind of run into the problem that this is a completely negative text in yeah. the sense that it is mostly why other people are wrong, right? right. <laughs> um, so did, does this mean that, that this author's group had no common meal that they shared as, yeah. a, um, as a common experience? Mm-hmm. Possibly they didn't. On the other hand, possibly they did. They just didn't celebrate it as a sacrifice to the God of Israel and uh, a commemoration of Jesus's death in which the bread and wine are his body and blood. Mm. I mean, they may have just because Christians, of course, also had you know, main you know, non-Gnostic Christians also sure. had this thing called the agape meal, mm. right, where they all got together and and shared a meal, and especially people who didn't um, eat well all the time were able mm. to do so. And um, for a while, you would do the agape meal and the Eucharist at the same event. Mm-hmm. That seems to be happened when Paul's writing. You know, mm-hmm. he says you're getting together for dinner and then you're doing this, um, Eucharist thing. Mm. Um, but at some point these become separate mm. rituals and Christians we know did continue to celebrate an agape meal that was not the Eucharist and the mm. Eucharist became more a symbolic eating, right? You just yeah. eat bread and wine. You don't yeah. have a whole you know, meal. Whole meal yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's possible they did that, but, um, you know, this this is one of the things people might say, oh, they have no meal at all because they're against the Eucharist. But the, see, this is the problem. It's a, it's this is a text that's criticizing other people, but we don't really know what his positive sure message would be. I mean, it's it's definitely stop doing the Eucharist, but whether that means we don't have another. Right. We
0: only have one side of the coin. We have the negative side of the exactly. coin. Exactly. <laughs> we only
2: have the negative side. And, yeah. um, you know, so this, and it, that's what the author tells us at the beginning. He says yeah. this is a judgment, the report of judgment. Mm-hmm um so you know this is uh, i often t- because people will read this and think oh this is such a depressing text and it and the author clearly has no positive message of salvation this is just mm-hmm. you know awful because you know most of it is pretty is negative <laughs> and i say well you know he we don't have that positive mm-hmm. message text right this would be like you know most kids unfortunately today if they know anything about like jonathan edwards the great christian theologian greatest one this country ever produced it's from sinners in the hands of an angry god a horrible you know fire and <laughs> right. brimstone sermon but he wrote a lot of other really nice things right
1: <laughs> you know? so uh
2: you know where he's very positive about jesus and love and nature and how wonderful it is and so we just don't know what else this guy might have might have said that sure
0: like, now would he be do you think he would be also coming against like the idea of celebrating like martyrdom because i think that like. If you think if he's coming against this idea that you know God demands bloodshed and sacrifice things like that there's also like I remember from reading like in seminary and stuff like a lot of the um like church fathers are very almost like celebratory about martyrdom like it's the you know the highest calling that one could have to you know lose your life for your faith and to sacrifice yourself and like that like Is there a sense where this writer is also coming against that as well? Because I'm assuming that kind of language, correct me if I'm wrong, was around Mm -hmm. in the day that this was perhaps written.
2: Yes. And this actually is one of the big scholarly controversies, Mm -hmm. actually, about the Gospel of Judas, because the big, after this initial scene where um, Jesus finds the. The disciples having a meal that they call their Eucharist and he laps at it and so forth and so on. Later, the disciples have what we can only call a nightmare, where they, um, oddly, they all have this, this nightmare um, in which they are priests sacrificing animals, right? And, um, you know, and it's just they're sacrificing so many animals that this altar is just like in flames, you know, and it's just amazing. And uh, Jesus says, you know, this this is what's happening. You guys are these priests and you're the animals you're sacrificing are actually your followers and you're leading them to their doom and all this stuff. So uh, what is this horrible sacrificial mm. thing, right? And uh, some have argued that the primary reference of that scene is indeed martyrdom. Mm. Um, uh, for a variety of reasons, I don't think it's the primary reference of the scene. I think the Eucharist is in fact mm-hmm. the primary reference of the scene. But (laughs) yes, uh, ancient Christians at this time also uh, spoke of martyrs as sacrificial victims and used the the imagery of the Eucharist in association with them. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch is the most famous source for this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that other Christians valued martyrdom as a sacrifice that imitates jesus's death and is a pleasing sacrifice to the god of israel which is what other christians tended to think <laughs> he would clearly be against it because he I and he doesn't like the god of israel he doesn't like sacrifice he doesn't like any of this stuff right. now whether this means this author um you know for examples it believes that let's say you are arrested for being a christian Mm uh which he thinks of himself as Mm -hmm. he's a christian right he doesn't use that word Mm -hmm. but you know this is what he thinks of himself and let's say he was arrested for this would he say oh you should just lie and deny christ and not suffer martyrdom that i don't know and uh, i'm not willing to go down that route and say that he for example, says you should, you should not be martyred. If mm. that comes to you, mm. uh, that is, you should, you know, give up your faith if you're arrested. I'm right. not sure he would believe that, but I certainly think agree that if you say, Oh, martyrdom's great because it's a sacrifice <laughs> an imitation of Jesus's death to the God of Israel. He would say, no, 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 <laughs> no, that, that no. <laughs> is, no. Yeah, no, that's all wrong. Right. right, right. Um, yeah, so uh, part of the issue right now in early Christian studies is um, is how much of a big deal martyrdom was in this period, mm. and um, but it, it certainly existed, and it, it you know whether this author what what his attitude was if you're arrested what should you do, I have no idea. Yeah, I just had
0: a uh, John Dominic Crossan just came on the show not that long ago, and he was talking about his new book, uh, Render okay. to Caesar. And we're talking about Revelation, and he talks about how, in his estimation, the writer of Revelation is really kind of um, blowing up the story, so to speak, and making martyrdom out to be perhaps a bigger thing than it might oh, yeah. have actually been um, in that day. And I, we've all been led to believe, and I have is from, certainly in school and everything like that, that you know. Christians were just being murdered left and right and crucified left and right, you know, all the time. And he says that might not possibly, possibly might not be the case.
2: (laughs) No, I mean, you know, the the important thing to say is that martyrdom was real and people did die. I mean, you know, Justin Martyr was a martyr who lived at this time. And Ignatius of Antioch presumably did get killed and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So martyrdom was, was happening. It was a thing. Yeah. It was a thing. Right. The, the, the thing was, is it wasn't, Empire wide, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't consistent until the year 250. Mm. So um, before the year 250, it was always local, you know, and your local officials had to care. You know, people could say, "Oh, we have a Christian down the street. And that's probably why we have bad you Know flooding happened, whatever you know, right. they're offending the gods, you know, and right. so forth. The local governor, or whatever, may have been like, Oh, please don't bother me with this. The reason we have flooding is we have bad sewage pipes, sure. or something. you know. I mean, he right. so you know, he would have had to care, mm-hmm. and um, and it, ought, you know, a lot of them didn't, and so it, the fact is, is that yeah, it was not, and texts that are about the problem of. Everyone hates us, Mm -hmm. are of course going to make this a big deal, right? right? As Revelation does and stuff, right? So, but um, certainly martyrdom did occur. It it was not constant. Christians didn't necessarily live in constant fear. Mm. Um, uh, You know, everything changes in the year 250 when Mm -hmm. the emperor Decius does, in fact, have an empire wide policy that everyone must sacrifice a to bit thought. of a monster <laughs> and then oh yeah then yeah. it's bad it's bad news for yeah. christians and uh and you know in the so-called great persecution that happens in the early 300s is equally horrific mm. so but no in the second century and when the B- book of revelation was written it was a local thing that doesn't mm. minimize how awful it was sure. for the continent sure. but um but yeah it's not like it was a constant it's a bit more danger. perspective That's right.
0: That's right. So last question for you. Um, A lot Uh of people who are listening to the show uh, are not scholars. So maybe some of them are, most of them aren't. Uh, Most of us are, you know, deconstructing out of this uh, evangelical world. We're trying to piece back our faith. We don't want to let it go. We're just trying to piece Uh back ways that make sense to us. So let's get practical with this book. Like the Gospel of Judas, obviously, like you said, has kind of a negative rap, right? It's not like the gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Thomas, <laughs> these extra biblical books where people might be like, oh, I can glean something from this to, you know, it's a little bit of an uplifting message. But I feel like even so, like I feel like this book can still be useful for people who are leaving evangelicalism. They're really pushing back on that uh, you know, sense of orthodoxy in today's world. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my question is like, how can this book help inform someone's faith today who's in that kind of uh, place where they're deconstructing, reconstructing, because obviously the writer wrote this for a reason. It was important to him to write this thing down. Uh, okay. so, so why, and what might the writer want us to take <laughs> away today in a more modern age? <laughs> Again, uh, well, more speculation, question, but because, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. And I say this at the preface of my book, I, I, find really pretty much nothing of spiritual nourishment really <laughs> in this book it's it's very negative right yeah. and it's mostly polemical however um the the heart of the question of this book is who is the god that you really worship yeah and what sacrifice do you make in your worship of that god mm. And, um, you know, and that's what's upsetting the author, these people, and he, he feels as though the leaders of these other Christian communities, whom we would call the Orthodox, right, mm-hmm. are sacrificing the souls and lives of their followers, because they're leading them astray. Okay, mm-hmm. now we can like say, oh, I don't, you know, that's not what was happening. But this book does say, you know, think hard about um, the God that you're worshiping, and the acts that you do. In honor of that God, mm-hmm. and who or what you may be sacrificing in that yeah. activity, yeah. and uh, you know, and I would encourage people who who want to think deeply about these things to say, you know, you know, you can say I worship this God, <laughs> but uh, but one's lifestyle, the things one chooses to do, the kinds of um, activities one engages in, and so forth may suggest that you actually worship other, something else. Mm. And I think that's, that's kind of the heart uh, for me, at least what this gospel raises is the question of, you know, what God do you really worship in your life mm. and what kind of sacrifices are you asking of others mm. really um, to, in your service to this God?
0: It's really good. And I guess we, we see that most evidently like you said, in that beginning piece, where the disciples are having the Eucharist and they're saying, "No, we're, we're doing this for God and Jesus, right. You're not doing it for God.
2: (laughs) No, you're, you know, and um, you know, and this gospel has an acute sense of sin, right. It it condemns people for doing bad things, you know, Mm -hmm. committing murder, adultery, all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, kinds of things. And uh, what it wants to say is, um, you know, look at your own behavior, what you're doing, this will reveal what your true, worship really is yeah and um, and I think to the extent that it makes us all a little bit self-reflective about you know about our own worship lives and our practical lives and our ethics mm-hmm. and and what that means and especially the notion of sacrifice and mm-hmm. you know people say you know we should sacrifice for God and I'm like, well what you know there's one thing to call upon oneself, to make sacrifices for God and for others, but, uh, we often unintentionally or deliberately ask other people to sacrifice things. And we should think about what we're doing when we do that. That's right.
0: Well, that is, that gives us a lot to chew on my friend. uh, Thank you. We're just about out of time, but this has been really good and really informative. And I can't thank you enough for taking time to talk to us.
2: It's totally fun. I'm so glad you asked me back.
0: Thank you. And real quick, uh, what resources would you recommend for people who want to learn more about this gospel? I mean, I know I mentioned the Pagels and Kings book, um, Uh I think Er Erman's book and your book is a little bit more of the of the scholarly one, but right. Which ones yeah. can we throw in there that people can maybe head to Amazon and pick up?
2: Yeah, no, so yeah, exactly. So those were those are good books that you mentioned, Pagels mm-hmm. and King and Ehrman. The only kind of downside to them is that they were written before what happened in two thousand ten. Mm-hmm. They started to surface in two thousand nine. Is that new fragments? of the Gospel of Judas were discovered that those authors did not have access to Mm. in when they wrote those books. So if you're reading
0: any, yes, exactly. (laughs) So
2: anything you read about the Gospel of Judas, if it's written before really 2011 because Mm -hmm. the fragments were published in 2010. So it took some pipe for people to become aware of them and use them in there. And then of course there's always delays in publication. Um, These people didn't know about those fragments and sometimes their conclusions And the things they say and the things they worry about Mm -hmm. uh, have been resolved. Uh, Because there's other You know, like there's a big debate in the early literature about who enters the cloud at the end, Jesus or Judas. Mm -hmm. And it kind of looked like it could be Judas at the end, but a new fragment showed up. It's Jesus that goes into the cloud. So, you know, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff. So what I would recommend is uh, two resources that are post (laughs) the new (laughs) fragments that would be helpful. There are two ways to contextualize the Gospel of Judas, that is to see how does it fit in the world of early Christianity. Mm-hmm. One is to read it with other gospels. Mm-hmm. And for that, I would recommend a book by Bart Ehrman and Slot Plesha called The Other Gospels. Mm-hmm. Accounts of Jesus from outside the New Testament, a nice paperback edition. You probably have it. There it is. There it is. <laughs> yes. And so it has a nice translation of Judas right. with an introduction, and you can read it next to other early gospels of the time and you can kind of see how it too is a variation on the basic narrative and sure. they had the other thing the other you've <laughs> also already held up which is the gnostic scriptures there it is um yeah so that's a little self-plug but it too, it's now it puts it next to other gnostic texts yes so there you know although we can't be sure that the author of the gospel of judas would agree with you know these other Gnostics, they don't, mm. probably didn't agree about everything. You can see in other Gnostic texts, perhaps the more positive messages that you don't see in the Gospel of Judas. And when you put it next to these other texts that are Gnostic, I think a, a lot of what is trying to say becomes clearer than it does when you just read it. You know, just on your own by yourself. Yeah. You know, for example, when Judas says you come from the Barbelo, you're like Barbelo. What, what, what the is heck that? is that? Barbarian? And it's never explained, <laughs> right? But <laughs> if you read the Secret Book of John, which comes in this book right before this, you know yeah. exactly what he's saying and what the Barbelo is. Sure. So that's those are the kinds of things I would recommend. And these are both paperbacks that you know are accessible easily on Amazon and are meant for non-specialist yes people. So that's yes. what I would recommend
0: awesome i'll put the links in the show notes and i'm sure okay. we'll have you back on the cook up some more heresy
1: <laughs> that
2: would be great awesome. i always love heresy thank okay. you my friend <laughs> thank you
1: everyone for an exchange trying to make a little change coming up on the tray. take that to the bank yeah make sure you maintain little money make you dance climbing up on the chain yeah number one on the range everyone for an exchange trying to make a little change coming up on the trade take that to the bank yeah make sure you maintain little money make you dance climbing up on the chain yeah number one on the red here go my plate i collect I'm taking whatever I get I'm constantly chasing the check, check. Make sure my mental check One thing I can never forget I'm seeking for financial freedom, I'm set. set Can settle for nothing or less no. I'm not the one to finesse no. About to be prompts Know the for the dodge. Over here popping, now they came up And I'm moving these columns column, column. One click, then boom. boom Money transforms zoom. zoom Bank accounts start to bloom no, no need to assume want for an exchange Trying to make a little change Change. Coming up on the tray, take that to the bank, yeah. Make sure you maintain, maintain. little money make you dance. dance. Climbing up on the chain, yeah. Number one on the range, everyone for an exchange, trying to make a little change. 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 Coming up on the trade maintain. take that to the bank, yeah. Make sure you maintain, maintain. little money make it yeah yes. climbing up on the chain yeah number one on the right. yeah. yeah celebrate it's a good day i'm getting paid on a new level it's in my face throwing it bags i need to save it's on lock watching my back as it's hot the numbers i'm moving the stock no time to waste on the clock i'm hitting the big on my way to the top make sure my family are good i'm sharing the workers, it's equal to the lot we got got heads in the pot the motto is we all we got huh the ones who died to do everything that I forgot It's all love, I in it to win it Either you win with it or not Everyone for an exchange Trying to make a little change Coming up on the trade Take that to the bank, yeah Make sure you maintain a Little money make you dance Climbing up on the chain, yeah Number one on the range everyone for an exchange trying to make a little change coming up on the train take that to the bank yeah make sure you maintain little money make a dance climbing up on the chain yeah number one on the ranks